Headliner Radio, the creative voice. All right, Paul, Leonard, Morgan, welcome to Headliner Radio. How are we doing? We're doing all right. Thank you, Adam. Amazing. You're just telling me you're in LA. How's, well, you're just telling me it's quite cold, is it? <laughs> yes. yes, it is cold. I was driving the kids down to school in the Jeep with the top down, but about 5,000 layers on. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. Picturing the scene, the sun is out, but it's very autumnal day. Yeah. And you went to New York and that was even testing your Scottish. Yes, you, you're from Glasgow originally. And they just so, yeah, I'm from Glasgow. Uh, studied at the Conservatoire up there, and then was there for about 25 years, and then came over to LA. Um, and then, yeah, I've been here ever since. I've still got my studio in Glasgow for when I'm working on UK projects, mm-hmm. and then based over here, and so built a studio here. Took a couple of years, um, and yeah, picture the scene. You can see the hills outside. <laughs> We're always going to say it's the nearest you can get to Scotland, except for the fact that it's sunny. Yeah. My experience of Glasgow, I performed when I was at uni. I we performed at a um, wind band or wind orchestra, sorry, competition in Glasgow. So we did that. I went to a cost, costa somewhere in Glasgow, and that's my entire life experience of Glasgow. Well, experience so of Glasgow is going to cost a coffee. This is the saddest thing ever. I was about. <laughs> I think we had a sort of pint and burger deal in a pub somewhere. That was it. But you know, I was nineteen, so forgive me if I went now. I'd do the full. <laughs> No, Glasgow is an absolutely wonderful place. Still have so many friends and bands there, and all of that. It's just got such a thriving music scene. You know, it's brilliant. Yeah, I will. Yeah, unfortunately, in the UK, you know, getting the trains more expensive than most flights nowadays. So that's the only thing putting me off. But all right, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll sub you five next time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. Just to fully introduce you, Paul. Um. Yeah. Maybe we could start with getting into music as a younger person. Um. Can you remember the point where you started becoming fascinating with music and film in particular and the point where that started looking like a job for you? Well, music and music and film were two separate things. I mean, music I was always into. I always loved it. Mum was a music teacher, uh, a flautist and a pianist. Um, But I remember kind of writing music when I was 9, 10, 11. I'd be very geeky. I remember being on a beach Mm -hmm. in court and i had manuscript paper and my parents were going insane they're just like we're on holiday what are you doing i was just like yeah give me my pencil i was just there kind of scribbling tunes and stuff so i always loved writing music but i remember watching the mission uh with my gran and i was going this is beautiful morricone score and it's just absolutely gorgeous and i thought i think i must have been about 13 and i thought yeah you can do that as a job what so you write music and it gets attached to the film and someone pays you for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it was never my intention to actually do film music per se, but I always kind of had that going in the back of my mind, kind of going, oh, this is really fun. And then when I actually started doing it, when I went to the conservatoire and various people in Glasgow just started giving me some short films and stuff like that, I thought, God, this is great. It was such a buzz. Um, but yeah, so I would definitely say it was the, it was the Morricone score of um, the mission that kind of mm-hmm. got me going. Yeah, and... Um... You studied in Glasgow, you said. Um, when did uh, America come into the... Because I know some people go and do the studies in America and then immediately they're like assisting Hans Zimmer or whoever. You know, they're at yeah. control straight away. But how, how did it look for you? Well, I never did the assistant route. Um, more for me, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I, still, I always have this thing of I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and there's clearly a... I get all these assistants coming from the Zimmer schools or the various schools kind of going like, hey, can I be your assistant? <laughs> you're, you're so much better than me. <laughs> um, but the I say so I studied at the conservatoire. I started producing bands and doing string arrangements for bands. So that was all in Glasgow. 
And then, as I say, I, I kind of worked on some UK TV, like, spooks. Um, and that was really good kind of training ground because it made me write really quickly. So, you know, I had a week to do one episode. And then that's kind of the same as over here. But then I was working on different stuff. So suddenly I was doing an episode in about two days. I was like, God, this is bonkers. And it's wall-to-wall music. Um, and I got my BAFTAs and stuff like that. And then I got this chance. I came over here because I was working with some bands. So I kind of said to the Spooks guys, are you cool if I do that from LA? They're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So it gave me some work to do while I was here, but also working with the bands. I really liked the creative vibe. And then I got offered the opportunity to pitch for this film, um, Limitless, which is Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro. Um, And got the pitch. I had about three weeks to score the entire film. It was over Christmas. So I did that back in Glasgow because I was kind of went back for Christmas. And it went to number one around the world. And then that was kind of the career-changing moment, I guess. Yeah, because just on the assistant thing, I feel like the two routes into film composing that I can tell are either, um, yeah, being an assistant for a certain amount of time until a director or the composer you're working with takes pity on you and gives you a scene to score and you sort of grow from there or just put out, you know, be a sort of artist and put out music until eventually a director hears your stuff and wants to work with you, which is obviously much less... Straightforward. It sounds like neither of those were how it works. Well, I, you like I, a mixture of the two. Would you say? I, so the assistant thing definitely wasn't. There's nothing to do with my path, and yeah, mm. everyone always kind of says that. So, what, how would you get into it if you're an upcoming yeah. composer? I've got absolutely no freaking idea. <laughs> but I definitely wasn't. So I definitely wasn't the assistant thing. I was definitely more of the artist. But I think because I work with bands, people thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So. They, like the kind of band vibe coming into your soundtracks so i think that definitely helped me the fact that i've worked with you know i work with artists in glasgow it was just glasgow as i say it had a really thriving music scene so there was kind of isabel campbell who who left ben sebastian so then i kind of went and did loads of albums with her did a remix with snow patrols working with simple minds in texas there was a wonderful producer there still is actually tony dugan um so he was getting me to do loads of strings on his stuff so there's joy zipper and then when I came over here, I was working with No Doubt. And so, yeah, there's kind of various bands. But I think that from the artist's point of view, that is totally the way in my head to go. Because I think I would go mad if I just did film music. I think if you're looking at the screen 24-7, 365 days a year, you would go mad. Whereas, you know, I do albums, I do ballets, um, just working on an opera at the moment, but then also working on three different films. It gives you, I don't know, your musical kind of breadth just it goes so diverse when you work on different stuff so i think you've got to be true to yourself you've got to have your own style whereas i feel that sometimes assistants maybe try and imitate other people not imitate badly but try and kind of work out the style of different composers and go right who would you like me today to be today you know danny elfman who'd you like me to be today zimmer you know as opposed to just have your style and then people will come and find you yeah do you have people asking about how you got into um working with bands and is that equally a baffling question for you to answer? <laughs> Actually, no, the bands thing is easier. Just hang around in pubs in Glasgow. Uh, <laughs> not Costa Coffees. Um, yeah, no, no, no. When I... Dreadful coffee, le- just to be clear. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> we do. other, other coffee chains are available. Yes. <laughs> um, we... Yeah, I'd left the Conservatoire, or the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, as it was called then, and I was looking for a somewhere to kind of rent out a studio. So there was a studio called Sabah. Um, and 
it was basically the recording studio in Glasgow. So I had a little room at the back there. And there was another wonderful composer who had the other room at the back called Craig Armstrong, who was the composer for like Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet and just a wonderful human being and brilliant composer. Mm-hmm. Um, but then all the bands on the other side, I say they would just start calling up or the the producers would start calling up saying, hey, there's this classically trained dude over there. We need to put some strings on our album. Um can can you help so they would literally just walk around and come and knock on the door and say hey are you Paul and I was like yeah <laughs> so do you want to do some strings um and of course yeah you're 18 and 19 20 and you're just getting some real players and to hang in a recording studio it was the most wonderful thing and then you just start getting to know the bands and it always sounds like a name drop but honestly there was like one bar just around the corner that we would always hang at and all the members of all the different bands would play on everyone else's stuff so it wasn't so much a case of oh can i work with that band or that band it was a case of you all just hang around together and you have a mutual respect for each other yeah did you work with mogwai as well did i read yeah i worked with mogwai they um barry does most of their stuff barry burns is wonderful guy um and got Stuart obviously but uh I did some strings for one of their no what was it it was one of their tracks on an album and then they also did some work with the Turner prize giving artist so I did some string arrangements for that as well yeah no just because they had that very unlikely number one album mostly because of the number of vinyls that I bought of it for my friends <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think I was te- texting Barry going, come on, we're going to do this. We're going to do this, right? Yeah. No, it was my favourite chart race ever. It's between them. So Glaswegian post-rock versus um, Getz, which is, he's a grime MC. So it was, yeah, really amazing. Is that what it was? It was like, right, yeah, he's yeah. going to... And he, he rode a tank through central London to promote it. And that, yeah, Mogwai still managed Shut to... Up. Yeah. What did, what did Mogwai do? <laughs> Nothing. I don't think that would be on brand for them. <laughs> going down Oxford Street. <laughs> Yeah, just very good yeah. music. Yeah, um, no, but they won, and that was. I think everyone won. It's one of those things where the music won, as cheesy as it sounds. But um, no, so no, you're saying um... they did. I was going to say they did a. Um, I did a remix album of one of my soundtracks called Dread last year. Um, yeah, I saw that on Spotify actually. Right, so it was, it was its tenth anniversary. So mm. I kind of speaking to this company called Mondo, who do beautiful vinyl releases and said well how how about it you know dread was a really special soundtrack to me so it was quite cool because what we did was did a release of the, the original soundtrack but then on the b kind of vinyl we did um a bunch of remixes that i got my mates to do so mogwai did one pt that i worked with on cyberpunk he did one john tahana who's a dj out here did one and then i did a bunch of kind of piano um versions of it kind of classical renditions of the dread stuff so again it was kind of stuff stuff that people weren't expecting but it was so nice just to have your pals kind of doing remixes it was wicked no absolutely um as you mentioned as you mentioned um limitless happened quite quickly for you no i remember uh what being in the cinema watching that and honestly loving the score i'd become a bit disillusioned with full music around that time but i loved how electronic and um different it was and it felt like a big moment for film music from where i was sitting um that must have been an amazing experience for you to work on work on that film. Yeah, thank you. It was um yeah, it was. It was an amazing experience. But then I also realized, you know, sometimes if you want to do something but have no idea how to do it, I don't mm. mean the process of how to write film music, that people always kind of say, like, oh look, you know, it's a big, you know, however many millions of dollars film. And you realize it's exactly the same process whether the film's got had 10 bucks spent on it or 10 million or 100 million, it's still the same process of writing music. And I think the only difference is 
you're kind of trying to put on the larger budget films, you're trying to persuade people to let you do your own thing as opposed to rein it in. Because a lot of times people want to be safe because it's a business. We go, look, this is really bloody boring, but if you let me do this and we'll ride the guitar and I'll kind of daft punk it up because I'll sample up two bars of guitar and then I'll kind of detune it and put these beats underneath it. And then they were a little bit kind of apprehensive to begin with. And then and then when they heard it, they just like, God, this is really different. This is so cool. And I remember, mm. I think it was, Two years later, the social network, I got my, my timeline might be all over the place, but I think the social network won the following year or two years later. And I was watching the Oscars with my friend Natalie, who's a music supervisor, and she just burst into tears. I was like, oh, you're right. And she said, yeah, I don't understand how important this is for the music industry because it shows that it doesn't just have to be orchestral scores. You know, yeah, I can do orchestral scores. Yeah, I'm tr classically trained, but it shows that you can just do the type of score that you want to do, and it will resonate with people. Yeah, no, because I was actually going to mention um, shortly after watching Limitless, I remember watching another film Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did, um, "The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo," David Fincher version. I've and... read the book. Yeah. Oh, I controversially prefer David Fincher's version. The Swedish one's great, but I really loved that one with Daniel Craig. And um, But yeah, I just remember having seen Limitless and then hearing their music for Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, I was really excited with where film music seemed to be headed. So I think, yeah, honestly, it feels like you and um, those two and a lot a lot of other people were really part of something exciting. That's funny that that you So you say you were disillusioned with the, not disillusioned, but with the film music scene around that time. Yeah, Why? I think in sort of 2000, I remember seeing some really... Before going to uni, I had some friends who would drag me to big blockbusters. I remember seeing like Die Hard Four or something, and <laughs> doesn't Don't help that I see such a bad hard. film. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I won't name any names, but I remember watching one film where the music was such a blatant ripoff of Inception, almost note for note. That I really, I just started feeling like everything was copy and pasting each other, and then yeah, seeing like Limitless and um, some of David Fincher's movies that we've mentioned. Um, that started getting me excited again, yeah, for sure. But it, but it does also depend on the director and the filmmakers. You know, it's, it's yes. very easy. You know, as a composer, there's only so much you can do you know, at, as far as saying, right, this is what I want to do. And if you've got a very insecure director or insecure filmmaker or they're worried mm -hmm. about them, then they want wall-to-wall -wall music or more energy or louder or more drums or this or that. You really have to fight your corner sometimes. And I think that's where, again, not knowing what you're doing I say this self-deprecatingly, but also slightly truthfully, not knowing what you're mm. doing helps because instead of being a formulaic composer where it's like you use this beat and you use this loop and you use this sound and everyone knows what sounds everyone else is using. Instead, I'm just always looking at it going, right, well, what's an interesting sound? Like I'm on one at the moment where I've just literally recorded a double bass, detuned it by an octave and then made a contact instrument out of it, like a sample and using pitch bend. And suddenly it sounds like a synth, but it's not, a synth because you couldn't create that sound with a synth but i think using those kind of techniques it just creates a really interesting palette and i think now you know it's such an exciting time for film music because yeah. it really is a case of anything goes and going back to your conversation about being an artist 15 minutes ago whatever i think people just like that now it doesn't matter whether you're a band or a solo artist or a weird piano player from the depths of <laughs> the outer hebrides so long as it brings an emotion to a film i think people are really up for it at the moment because film has transitioned into streaming services which has transitioned into it doesn't matter where you're watching it it's just got to be mm. good film yeah 
Precisely. Um, I'm sort of on that theme. Did you relate to the story of Demolis? Because I remember feeling like, well, I really relate to this in the sense that, you know, I have days where I feel switched on and creative and productive. But then, you know, seeing the days where Bradley Cooper's got huge bags under his eyes and just kind of <laughs> That's me this morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did that help? Did that story relate to you and did it help draw the music out of you that you ended up? writing at all no, it, it's a it's a very good point because someone once asked me you know, do you have to relate to, to films in order to be able to score them and whilst i don't think you have to relate to them as long as you as long as you you like the film and you feel that it's leading you somewhere i think with limitless i'm naturally a very energetic kind of person and for those that haven't seen limitless it's about this guy who discovers this pill and basically pops this pill and in three seconds he's suddenly the most super intelligent hyper-focused person achieves things that he never thought he could achieve and then but once the pill wears off he's just a complete loser um <laughs> i don't know which part i associate with but, um, but yeah so for, for me the energeticness of it is very much me as a composer Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can spot the kind of style of person that any composer is just by listening to some of their music. It doesn't mean that they all write the same stuff, but you can tell if someone is an introvert, an extrovert. You do, do they do this kind of stuff? So that for me was the, a perfect fit because I like writing in your face music. Whereas I've just finished a soundtrack called Fellow Travelers, which is um, a new thing on Showtime and Paramount. And that was a very, very sensitive quartet and piano led soundtrack. And Again, I think it just depends where your head is at when you're writing this stuff. Because for me, over the last two, three years, I've done a lot of string and piano stuff. And this is almost the culmination of it. I think, you know, I'm super proud of it. I'm really pleased with Mm -hmm. it. But I think I need to do some electronic stuff to get the niceness out of my system. No, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, just to close off that retrospective, are there any other, besides Limitless, any really fun memories from your career? I mean, I know we touched on Dread already in fun memories oh god so many but i mean dread, dread was dread was cool but i think all of these things like tales in the loop was my first collaboration with philip glass um and i got to work with some incredible directors like mark romanek jenny foster andrew stanton um but also it was the first collaboration that i'd had with a composer so i'd never how does that work when you all have massive egos mm-hmm. <laughs> but fortunately uh Philip Glass was just the most wonderful human being out and has no ego, um, which is utterly bizarre because he should be the one with the ego if ever there was one. But yeah, so that was slightly terrifying. Um, yeah. Having a cup of tea at Philip at Philip's uh, Brownstone in New York was quite something. He's making me a cup of tea. So how do you take it? How do you do this? And at the same time, talking about my musical career and style. I'm like, God, has he Googled me? I don't, I don't understand this. Um but it was genuinely, it was a wonderful moment. And then did that series, it did so well, but also the music. It's, it's, it's hard to explain because some productions are just massive and others, even though they're big budgets, it seems like a very small family that you're on. And Tales of the Loop was definitely one of those. And say Fellow Travellers that I've just finished is one of those. Um, mm. and, but then at the same time, as I was collaborating with Philip, and that was the first collaboration I'd done, I was also working on this game, Cyberpunk with Marcin and Piotr in Warsaw. So I had two very, very different styles of soundtracks going and two very, very different styles of collaborations going because Cyberpunk was hardcore electronica. So it definitely, I like it when these experiences open your eyes to a different world and you kind of learn things from all these other composers and you kind of do then take that on the next part of your journey. Yeah, just on Philip Glass, I mean, a lot of people agree he's just one of the most important composers 
of modern times. Um, and he's obviously certainly carved out his own niche. So how was that? Did you sort of have to adapt in some strange way to collaborate with him or was it very natural and did you just fit really nicely? Adam, you know, it's a really good point because I had done, there's a wonderful filmmaker called Errol Morris. So Errol Morris got an Oscar for The Thin Blue Line and Philip had done his first three soundtracks three that said they weren't really soundtracks it was more music for them that errol would chop up and then philip got an oscar for the hours just after working with with uh errol errol used danny elfman for his next film and then i've done the next six but it was these huge kind of boots to fill almost and I was, it was the first time i'd felt kind of nervous yeah i've worked with a lot mm. of bands and inverted commas stars but um they're just people but suddenly with Errol, because he had used Philip, and I hadn't collaborated with Philip at this stage, I think I started trying to be a little bit like Philip. And then Errol just said, Paul, you know, I love your style naturally. You've got elements of Philip in it, but you've also got more modernity as far as modern sounds goes. He said, that's what I love about you. So just be yourself. And it was when he said that, it gave me the confidence to go and be myself. So then when I started working with Philip um, on Tales of Luke about two years later, it wasn't a case of being nervous. I think it was more just trying to sound out whose role was what to begin with. But in the end, you know, he would send me themes and I would put melody, I would put um, chords underneath it and I would send him my themes and he would put his chords underneath it. And I think when you start speaking the same language as each other and you have this intrinsic trust for each other, then it makes it so much easier. So we just worked again on uh, a soundtrack called The Pigeon Tunnel, which is Errol's latest one. Mm-hmm. So Errol said, look, you know, you guys seem to work so well together and I've used both of you for various films. Why don't you collaborate on this one? And it was such a special moment where it was on John le Carre and John le Carre's life. It was a really great film of Errol's. And it, again, it, we were just firing stuff back and forth and we suddenly seemed to have this shorthand with each other, which is really nice when you just have that ability to kind of know where the other person's going to take it. So it's quite good. Yeah, no, amazing. I'm kind of on that theme of minimalism and um, yeah no i'd love to talk about fellow travelers um yeah well firstly could you just sort of talk us through the show in your your own words your take on it fellow travelers it's yeah a, it's, it's a fantastic show and again so this was you know how i was saying about kind of feeling like families mm. and travelers was definitely the, the the first one after tales from the loop where i felt like that ron nyswainer who was the Oscar-winning writer of Philadelphia. Um, he's a big gay rights activist, LGBTQ plus activist, and um, he's just always done that. And this show, Fellow Travelers, is based on a book, um, but it's basically about McCarthyism, um, which, again, I didn't know that much about, but McCarthyism in the 60s in the States was where if you were gay, then you were encouraged to, well, people were encouraged to turn people in that they thought were gay. So then you couldn't work in the army, you couldn't work in the government, you couldn't work in this because they thought you're naturally going to be a communist. Um, it's very, very strange and terrifying era and lavender scare. And um, But this is essentially a beautiful romance. Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey, two humongous stars and wonderful actors. Um, and it's a love story, but it's a love story not in a typical sense, because it flicks between four decades. And one of the characters, Jonathan Bailey's character, Tim, is dying of AIDS in later times. So we don't know this at the time. So it flicks between all of this, and it's this unrequited love in the sense that 
Matt Bomer, uh, whose role Hawk, he works for the government. Um, he is married basically as a front so that he can carry on working for the government. Um, but his true love is Tim. So it's this beautiful love story. Um, but so artily done, cinematically done, we were kind of like, I feel like we got away with this. And now it's come out. Everybody's, I think it's on episode three at the moment. It's been getting such incredible reviews. I think it's like 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, all those kind of things. But just in general, everyone's saying, the acting, the cinematography, everything about the show, it's just phenomenal. And it's because of Ron. It just feels, the showrunner, uh, it just, it feels like this family. So we were given that automatic trust to go and do our thing on it. I'm now remembering doing McCarthyism in GCC history and none of this particular stuff with the gay community becoming sucked into it. The way you're describing was, yeah, a bit of a casual dig at the British education system there. But um, Well, yeah, I don't think it's just... Get a mention. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's just the British education system. I think it's also the American one because, mm-hmm. say, I live here in LA now and speak to so many of my friends. They really didn't have any idea. And now we've been going and doing you know, various press and Q&A and stuff like that. So many people kind of work, they were aware of it, but you know, it was almost brushed over. It was glazed over. Um, and it's absolutely terrifying you know, that you would go and dob someone in just so that you could almost detract from what you were up to yourself um and roy Cohn, who is one of the people that trump looks up to the most in life um Mm -hmm. it turns out that there are very strong rumors that he was gay as well but they would put others in danger just so that he could get away with it um so yeah absolutely absolutely horrific time but the show itself is is beautiful and heart-wrenching and makes you cry every time and feel things every time and yeah, it's wonderful. I absolutely adored it. Yeah, how was it initially becoming involved and um, what were the early conversations about the music like? Because obviously I was praising how electronic you went for um, <laughs> and this is a, no, very, very um, different, yeah. minimal well, again, uh, culture, well, it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think when I started working with Errol, I had just finished some theatre called The James Plays, which had premiered at the Olivier and up at the Edinburgh Festival. There's a National Theatre and National Theatre of Scotland production. Errol had heard that stuff and was like, who is this? I would love to work with this person. Um, And that was when I was kind of finding my, you know, because I say I'm classically trained to begin with, but then ended up (laughs) electronic with bands. So yeah, my style's all over the place. I just like doing different things. Um, But I was really enjoying that kind of working with a lush quartet, a very intimate and lush quartet and piano for a soundtrack I did with him called Wormwood. And then it just became a thing. And then lots of people have really liked the music that I'd done for that. Um, And then that was kind of what led to Tales from the Loop as well. So all of those things. So when this came along, um, fellow travellers, Ron had phoned up, talked me through the show. And again, they don't tell you, they don't say, hey, it must be electronic or hey, it must be classical. It's like, what are your sensitivities? What What are you thinking? So I just kind of went away and I wrote this theme on the piano and he was in Toronto filming at the time. So it's very hard to play things to people. Obviously you don't want to send them an MP3 that they can listen to on their phone, (laughs) Mm. but you don't want to take up too much of their time. So, but also you want them to feel part of the process. So I just put the piano, uh, put the phone at the side of the piano, did like about a four minute video of me at the piano, explaining my thought process behind it and just played this theme on it and where it was going and talked him through and I said, this is Hawk's theme. This is Tim's theme. This is how it's going to come together. This is the theme. And I sent it, I WhatsApped it to him. 
And I don't know what you're like, but composers are terribly insecure. So then you're waiting. You know, <laughs> why hasn't he replied? It's been 30 seconds. Why hasn't it been a minute? <laughs> and um, the next day, still nothing. And I was like, oh, God, he must hate it. It turns out he doesn't use WhatsApp. And I was like, oh, you dick. So they end up then sort of, you know, I, I messaged it to him. He's like, this is absolutely perfect. And he sent it to a few other people who just like, that is the sound of the show. That is that is it. So and it doesn't happen often where you just nail it straight away. But I could just imagine the intensity of a quartet, the cello, because it's such a romantic um, sound, the cello, but also lonely in some places. So the cello was going to be the main instrument. So, yeah, so it really was piano and quartet. And then as the show kind of goes into the 70s era, lots of Donna Summer, I started kind of morphing that through my mod synths and vocoders and stuff like that to create a kind of mm. trippy sound. So again, you use all those kind of techniques that you learn throughout your life um, in different parts. But it, yeah, it is fundamentally a, a piano and quartet sound. Yeah, in terms of uh, coming to that kind of instrumental palette, was that through looking at the script or the initial conversations or... Just the general vibe you're reading, or it how did that come script, about? I, it was a script I hadn't seen anything uh, at that time. They, they send you a kind of a mood board, so visuals of the time, a bit of a, a pricey of what the show is about, and a pricey of McCarthyism and Lavender Scare and so on. Um, and but they just let you have a look and basically you try and soak up stuff. Yeah, I try and soak up as if you can see my studio. I'm surrounded by props of this film that i'm working on at the moment when i remember when i was working on some minions short films universal just sent me a load of despicable me stuff so i was literally just surrounded by minions <laughs> you almost become immersed in the world uh not quite method acting but it, it's quite fun to be surrounded by that so with fellow travelers you're reading all of this stuff trying to immerse yourself in the world so for me yeah that was the themes just trying to come up with um some some themes that I thought would suit what I was reading on the script, but I'm terrible at reading scripts. So you, you, I always say that with a kind of an addendum that <laughs> this might well not be right, but, but this is my reading of your script. Yeah. Well, you, for me, it comes through as a very elegant score and with this huge sinister undertone. Was that, was that a conscious thing in your mind? It's, yeah, it's totally. such a sinister subject, isn't it? Totally. And I think, sometimes you can hollywoodize a score too much that you get too yeah. big an orchestra it sounds too glossy and it just overruns the entire picture whereas this is such sensitive subject matter but also such sensitivity between the performances that you can still make a quartet sound really dark um either with dissonance or by adding a few sounds here and there so there are some moments where i then took the cello and then just distorted it and you know, put it through a distortion pedal and through lots of reverb. And it's just a subtle thing, but it helps to the darkness when suddenly, you know, are they going to get found out or is the relationship not going well? Those moments where you can make it darker, you're still using the same instruments, but you're just treating it ever so slightly. So I guess that's the production side of me doing that. Um, yeah. And I thought I'd ask about another very recent project was the Boston Strangler. And the yeah, very big project for you. Um, yeah, how was that? How did you get to come to be involved with that? And did you know at the time uh, that Kira Knightley was going to be involved, for example? And yeah, Boston Strangler was fun. That was a yeah, it was a Kira Knightley one. And again, you know, it's the it's British history versus American history. I didn't know that much about mm. it. So Matt, the director, phoned up and said, "Hey, do you fancy doing it?" So I was like, "Well, what is it?" So he he told me a bit about it. Um, the Kira Knightley thing comes afterwards. Actually, it's funny. It's never a case of 
starring blah 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 that's mm. not the stuff that gets me interested in things yeah. stuff that gets me interested is i think stuff where i can let my mind go free so boston strangler again for those of you who don't know yeah but, but it, it was basically this person or possibly people that murdered a bunch of people in the 60s in boston no one ever knew who it was and the police just kind of let it go by so the concept of the strangler the film was there's kira knightley who's a journalist loretta and she was one of the first female journalists and so of course everyone get back in the kitchen yeah what are you doing in a newsroom here you can you know you can review kitchenware or something she's like no 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 i want to find this she became obsessed with it so her and her sidekick then went and basically solved the case so my take on it wasn't about it being the strangler it was about female empowerment and about two kick-ass women journalists going and solving this crime against all the odds so again you then got thematic material which are on strings and piano whatever but you've then got the darker stuff and that was a kind of big orchestra but you've then got the darker stuff which is the strangler or when she's meeting the, the people who might be the strangler and that was some really twisted electronic stuff and then when the two kind of converge so if she was going into the strangler's apartment so you've got all these sounds creating this cacophony almost you've got the electronica really piercing against the quartet and the orchestra coming from the other way and when they meet there's just this really unsettling subby bass coming underneath it but i mean for that one that was great we got to, we got to go out to skywalker ranch you know, george lucas's place and we recorded orchestra for a week or two uh it was an absolutely phenomenal great experience yeah, regarding your solo music, I mean, did you need like a nice solo project after doing, you know, a serial killer show and then McCarthyism <laughs> purging through the gay community? Surely you needed to do a nice concerto or something to get all that out of your system. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? Actually, it's not a concerto. It wasn't so much a concerto. I met a wonderful cellist called Suvi at the start of last year. I'd done a concerto that premiered in France two, uh, two and a half, three years ago. And a crazy French drummer over there said, hey, I've got a friend, Suvi. She's just moving to LA. You guys should meet. You'll get, up, you'll get on really well. Loved her. She started at the Juilliard. So I said, well, look, I could do, as kind of like you've just said, so I could do with writing an album right now just for peace of mind. I've, I never get any time. I'm always completely swamped. So I just took a month off, wrote this album for piano and cello. And we did a few demos. And then... This is to show you how mental the last year and a half has been. I literally got time to finish it in August this year. So again, I just took two weeks. We went into uh, Sunset Sound, where the Beach Boys recorded, and just recorded it properly. But what has been amazing about it um, has been the fact that we had principal ballet dancers from the San Francisco Ballet had heard some of the tracks and said, hey, can we choreograph some of the music to it? It's like, yeah, go for it. And then someone there was a fashion designer in new york fashion week who had heard one of the tracks so they flew suvi over to go and perform it while all the models are kind of coming down there and then someone else another dancer so it really seems to appeal to the dance community and that's for me it's been wonderfully uplifting so instead of all this dark 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 stuff it's been this and i said we haven't even released the album yet so it's literally just kind of people kind of hearing random snippets here and there so yeah it's been a really uplifting experience that and really nice as well again kind of up from an artist point of view i think we're gonna go and do some gigs next year and i think that gets my creative juices going again yeah is that do you follow that kind of pattern of doing a few films and then wanting to just get away on your own and do something that doesn't involve film it's purely just you and whatever you feel like writing or is, uh, it, just, or is it just whatever these snatches of time you can get 
in between projects is that when you in my ideal world that's exactly what happens in reality i get absolutely zero time um, and it's not <laughs> teeny tiny violins is okay it's wonderful but you have all these ideas and everyone always says this said man you come up for air you kind of go blah, blah, i want to do this 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 everyone starts going right we'll start getting in touch with you know that booking agent and this and this and this then we don't hear from you for two months it's like yeah it's because i'm then working producing another band or working another film so i'm trying to be mm. better this year I've said no to quite a lot of stuff and just trying to create a bit of sound, a bit of time for myself so that I can, because I think it's really important that you concentrate on your own sound as much as anything else, or everything's going to sound the same. Is that just because it's so, I'm sure it's hard to say no to things 15 years ago, but now in the streaming world, there's so much, so many amazing projects being put out in the pipeline. It's, it's it must be harder for. than ever to... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it's not about, you're right, you know, when you're starting out, it's about don't say no because, oh, you've got to get a CV together. Um, and now, <laughs> I, mean, I haven't been found out yet. I'm sure it'll happen soon. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but now it's more just about, there are so many wonderful projects out there. I want to do them all, but you suddenly realise you just can't and you have to take less because you want to do a really, really good job on them all. Because that's the point, isn't it? To immerse yourself in the projects, to create something unusual. Otherwise, you might as well just copy and paste everything that you've done before. There's no point in doing that. You want to create something original for every project. You can only really do that by taking on less work. But it means that the stuff you do hopefully is better and it's more rewarding. And it's nice to have a few hours here and there as well. (laughs) Uh, In the creative context of recent projects, I'd love to ask about just a few studio bits. That's okay. Um, yeah, sure. How does um how does a score start for you working with sort of Spitfire or anything like that to kick things off? Or? Uh, so I have a template uh, in a very mm. boring you know, language languagey world. Um, I have a template which has gradually grown during the years, and I've realised that it makes me sound progressively worse. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it just becomes so lazy and you open up the same thing and go oh that's great there's a string sound oh that's great there's that whereas again you know i was listening back the other day to some stuff that done about 10 years ago i was like god that, that was actually quite good <laughs> how did i do that it's like oh you didn't have a template so yeah my typical template has got about a thousand tracks on it um i use a thing called v pro um so that that stands as a standalone kind of sampler almost um and then in that yeah there's a lot of spitfire there's a lot of project sam there's a lot of berlin stuff um i mean i don't have half as many instruments as different people do for the sample side of it mm. but i make I make those i mean i've got the entire spitfire the entire i could, I could open up my ve pro project if you want to tell you exactly what's in there mm. um all this cine percussion stuff cine perks cine wins that's all pretty cool um but then on digital performer which is the door that i use I have a lot of stuff like all the Yuhi stuff, so the Divas and the Zebras, tons of contacts, um, you know, all the kind of Omnisphere, Atmos, and I use Arturia stuff endlessly and religiously till it breaks my computer. Uh, <laughs> it just goes in a meltdown. But I think the advantages of templates are that they're there, so it can definitely speed up your process. You've got sounds to get going with straight away. Downsides of it are the sounds are there, so you rely on the sounds that are there straight off rather than going thinking about the project itself to begin with and maybe experimenting a little bit. Yeah. I mean, with the orchestral VSTs, I've had composers say that they, when they use Spitfire, whichever one they're using, sometimes because the VSTs are so good now, they sort of, there's that danger of becoming attached to the VST demo. And then when they work with a quartet oh, or an orchestra, they're really? like, oh, this sounds different. I don't like 
Now, that, that is a very good question. And it's one of my pet hates and also moans because the wonderful thing about these sample libraries have meant that people are able to try things out. You know, oh, that's mm -hmm. what a bass clarinet sounds like. Or, oh, that's what a bass. So you get all this wonderful stuff. And that's great. But your typical score is not going to have 5,000 wind players all playing at the same time or 5,000 string players. Of course, what happens is, say, yeah, you press one button on a sample library and say that's 40, 40 strings. Press mm -hmm. another button. It's not like it's automatically devising unless you, you know, use various libraries and know how to use them. So suddenly you're playing a chord, but in actual fact, you've got 240 players playing that chord. It's not a real sound. So... You then go into it going, well, do I want this to sound like an orchestral soundtrack, like a typical old school Disney one or maybe an old romantic you know, film? Or do I want it to sound, you know, I mean, you talk about Inception and Zimmer and so on. Wonderful. Mm. It's the layering up of sounds. For me, I do like that. I hate the word hybrid sound, but where you use samples, but you also use real instruments. Yeah. But I don't think it's particularly effective using samples to try and create an orchestra sound because it's not an orchestra sound it's a specific orchestra sound it's a spitfire sound or it's a berlin sound or a spitfire chamber sound or whatever you're never really going to get the orchestra to recreate that because you've created that using that box of samples so you're either using it to demo it up for directors but then you've got to know the director well enough or explain the process to them that like look this is all going to be re recreated again like the you know, boston strangler so you're then up at skywalker sound you've got a big 80, 90 piece orchestra in front of you, but it's going to sound completely different to the mock-ups that you've got. Mm. And that's what I'm saying is sometimes it just sounds too big or too glossy. So it sounds too classical. For me, I like layering up samples. I keep the samples in the mix, um, particularly on the strings, and yeah. then layer up against it. Yeah, and on the word hybrid, are you when it comes to synths, are you sort of um, pragmatic when it comes to analog and digital, or is there just one of those that really works for you in particular? I just uh, I just go with whatever's sounding cool. I mean, in my studio, I've got I'm just turning around at the moment. You can't see it. What I've got? I've got a Matrix Brute. I've got the Jupiter X. Uh, um, I've got my Matriarch Moog. I've got my Pro Three Sequential, and then I've got my Nords, my JP eighty eighties, and my Korgs, and all those kind of things. So I've got a lot of keyboards there. Again, down and then obviously like, I've then got my Mod Sense and my Photex and my Lyra 8s, all that kind of stuff. But this problem with that is if you're working on TV scores, you do not have enough time to use it because yeah. if people come back and say, hey, we need to change this cue, you haven't got enough time to go and sort of load up the sound that you created on those instruments again, which is why I love the Arturia stuff so much because it's just in there. And you know, and the same with the kind of Zebras and the Yuhis and stuff, if you've already got the stuff saved in every door that you've got. So I tend to use the outboard gear for when I'm working on films, when I've got a bit longer, because then you can create the sound and sort of muck around with it. Yeah, amazing. Are there any um, like effects plugins that have been really key to recent, or just any, um, you know, sort of filters, reverbs, delays that you've been using a lot recently? Yeah, so, so I mean, for me, my everyday stuff, um, I've been, I've got the entire wave stuff, but I've, use it less but i still always use the h delays um mm -hmm. and verbs as well on those i've just literally bought as of yesterday um he goes it's like here's, here's your here's your tidbit um <laughs> the symphony plugin um which is the native instruments oh god what the hell is it called not evolve um God, what was it because this is going to be my new one in my thing i've been using let's plugins the entire time so my template has uh over every single uh, orgs channel there's a lex hall 
Um, and Lex have stopped making it for, they've stopped basically updating it and it's starting to crash the system. Exponential audio, there you go, simply. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be my new kind of reverb of choice that goes on every single track. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I always use the sound toys stuff. So, you know, Filter Freak, um, Decapitator, I use just so much. Um, I use some of Motus who make digital format. I use a lot of their just stock plugins actually for distortions in particular and warming stuff up. And then I use uh, the PSP finalizers and Vintage Warmer too. Um, so I use that again pretty much across every single track just to kind of warm it up a bit. Um, but other than that, yeah, pretty much the sound toys stuff and the slate stuff is my is my are my go to choices. Amazing. And just to round that off, if there's a pair of you know speakers or an interface or any mics that you want to give a shout out to that have really helped your career, yeah, please go ahead. Uh, well, when I mortgaged my house for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's like with you. Like, I just need one more mic. I just need one more. <laughs> yeah. I remember I bought my first grand piano. It was a Yamaha C7. This was in Glasgow. And I've still got it in the studio there. And um, mm. Steve Price, who was engineer down at Angel, may he rest in peace. Uh, but he, fantastic guy. And he said, uh, I said, well, what mics do I need? And bear in mind, you're just starting out and you've got absolutely no money. And then I bought a house. So at the same time, I bought the house. I bought the grand piano, so chucked it on the mortgage. And he goes, right, you want a pair of Sherps? I was like, okay, right. And they're Sherps pencil uh, ribbon mics. And um, I think they're about like 5,000 quid each or something. <laughs> and of course, yeah, it's all right for you. You work at Angel. <laughs> so then you speak to Roop and Jake and did my different mixers, and they all say, oh, yeah, they're great. So I chucked those on the mortgage as well. So those two shirt mics have stayed with me my entire life. I brought them over to the States, so they're now over my piano here, my um, concert grand. And the shirts mics are just what I always use. And then I bought a pair of Audio Technicas, so they're my kind of four. I tend to record my piano with four mics. So two Audio Technicas, two Sherps, and then blend them together. Um, and then the Adams speakers, the A77Xs, are pretty much what I've used in every studio I've had for about the last 10 years. No, wonderful. Oh, thanks so much. And um, yeah, there well, you go. You can geek out now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Paul. And um, how's, how's things looking the next few months as we round out? Obviously, without breaching any NDAs, of course, but um, you'll have to tell us what. Without breaching any NDAs. uh, Yeah, there's one film which finishes next week. There's this film which I've started two weeks ago, which needs done by the start of February. Errol's got another film which we record at the start of December. And there's a band which needs done by mid Feb. So it's quite busy at the moment. Um, But I'm having a blast and I'm loving it. And again, the nice thing about it is they're all very, very different styles. So. It's, it's the thing that makes it fun for me. Amazing. And did you say when your next album's out? Did you mention already? Sorry. Uh, still got to work it out. <laughs> so so mm. I had that mark, <laughs> the master came in at the end of last week. So now me and Suvi are just trying to work out when to put it out in time with kind of doing some gigs and stuff like that, which is going to depend entirely on when I can get these films out of the way. So hopefully, mm. I, I reckon probably around spring uh, next year. Yeah. And then finally, if um, if someone's listening and they're fairly new to you. Is there like a track or album or score, whatever it may be, that you would love to point them towards? Is like what you feel like? Go, well, really good introduction? Fellow, well, Fellow Travellers came out last week, so they can go mm-hmm. and listen to that just because I don't normally like my music. Still in the honeymoon phase, are you? But... Yeah, totally. But I, but I really, I do really like my Fellow Travellers score. I'm really proud of that. So go listen to that or Tales from the Loot to get you started. Or if you want some electronica, yeah, go listen to Limitless or something like that. Mm. 
Amazing. Yeah, no, you should be proud of fellow travelers. It's wonderful listening. Yeah, Paul, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Well, Adam, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.